All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavish. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavish Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up... Chris and I attended the recent West Conference in San Diego, where we heard a variety of Naval and Marine Corps speakers, had dozens of interesting conversations, and visited two shipyards as well. We'll break down some of what we saw and heard. We'll also revisit some of the Naval aspects of Russia's war on Ukraine and discuss what we've seen and learned. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Three missile destroyers, able to defeat incoming ballistic missiles, carried out a ballistic missile defense exercise February 22nd in the Sea of Japan. The demonstration by the Japanese destroyer Otago, South Korean destroyer Sejong the Great, and USS Barry came after North Korea launched ballistic missiles February 18th and 20th into the Sea of Japan. South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. all issued statements highlighting the North Korean missile launches and the anti-missile response. In an apparent reaction to the naval exercise, North Korea launched a further four ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan on February 23rd. The Barry had just left Yokosuka to return to the United States after six years operating forward deployed in Japan. The Russian Navy's only aircraft carrier, Admiral Kunetsov, was refloated February 21st from a floating dry dock at the 35th repair yard near Murmansk, north of the Arctic Circle. The ship has been out of service and under repair since 2018. A series of incidents, including at least two significant fires and the sinking of the dry dock in which the carrier was first placed, have extended the overhaul far beyond early completion estimates. While the ship is now afloat, Russian authorities say the work will continue until at least mid-2024. Five unmanned vessels from the U.S. Navy and the United Arab Emirates operated together in the Persian Gulf in a series of exercises ending February 20th. It was the first USUAE unmanned vessel exercise and included scenarios with visual information gathered by the USVs transmitted to shoreside operations centers where artificial intelligence systems analyze the data. More than 100 unmanned surface vessels are being operated in the Persian Gulf by the U.S. Navy's Task Force 59 and several Gulf Cooperation Council partners. The Middle East region's largest maritime exercise held annually will be combined with the East African Cutlass Express exercise and will involve 35 ships, 7,000 personnel from more than 50 partner nations. Austal USA delivered the Expeditionary Fast Transport Apalachicola TEPF-13 to the U.S. Navy's Military Sealift Command on February 16th. Fitted with systems to allow it to operate autonomously, the ship carried out extensive trials in 2022, ranging as far as the Atlantic Ocean off the Florida coast. MSC has no requirement for the unmanned systems, but the Navy is considering incorporating the ship into existing developmental efforts, although no decisions have been announced. Also at Austell, the Expeditionary Fast Transport Cody EPF-14 was christened at the company's Mobile, Alabama shipyard on February 25th. Cody is the first Flight 2 variant of the Spearhead class of EPFs. 
fitted with an enhanced medical mission capability that can support 41 medical patients. The vessel can also operate 11-meter rigid hull inflatable boats and MV-22 Osprey tilt rotor aircraft. And the final resting place of the long-lost World War II submarine USS Albacore, SS-218, has been located, the U.S. Navy announced February 16th. The sub apparently hit a Japanese mine off the coast of Hokkaido on November 7, 1944, and was lost with all 86 crew members on board. During her war career, Albacore scored a major achievement on June 19, 1944, when she torpedoed the Japanese aircraft carrier Taiho, the Imperial Japanese Navy's most advanced carrier and the flagship of the Japanese carrier force gathered to oppose the U.S. invasion of the Marianas. Damage from that torpedo hit soon led to a major gasoline fire and the Taiho exploded and sank. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, moving to the discussion portion of the show. Chris, we've had over the last three or four weeks, we've had guests on, so we haven't really had a chance to kind of go back and forth during the discussion other than uh, with our guests. Um, So we thought we would use uh, this period to talk about um, things that we've been tracking both in the news, but um, more pressing, um, the time that we spent out in San Diego, uh, we were both out at the West Conference, and then you stuck around San Diego for a week. I wanted to start with Austell. We both were at the Austell Shipyard event in National City. Wanted to get your thoughts uh, on uh you know, the event itself, it was a nice event, but uh, the event itself and the significance of uh, opening a yard like that in San Diego. So the, the day before the show started, the Monday before the show started, uh, also USA, who's based in Mobile, Alabama, um, had a nice sort of uh, ceremony to kick off their new repair yard in San Diego. This is actually a plus up. So this isn't, a, this is not a, not, not a spot that has done government Navy work uh, before. This is actually an ad out, out on the West Coast, which is in, in and of itself fairly unusual. Uh, this is actually this is a small, uh, smaller yacht yard uh, directly on the, on the south border of uh, the Naval Station, 32nd Street uh, Naval Base. Um, and it's, it's a new facility. Uh, Austell bought it a couple of years ago. They're, they're refurbished it, they've expanded it. Uh, this it's designed to handle smaller combatants, so it's not going to compete with um, uh, systems or uh, Vigor or uh, GD NASCO for destroyers and, and um, cruisers and amphibious ships. It's really sized to handle the littoral combat ship, and right now all the independence class littoral combat ships are based at San Diego, and it'll also handle the new frigates, the Constellation class frigates, when they come in, in hand. So the, to that end. Um, the Austell has bought a, a head built for them, a new floating dry dock. It's being built in Turkey. It uh, will be towed to San Diego. It's expected to arrive sometime in the summer. Um, and that's a, that's a major deal. It's, it's, um, it, it's important for these ships to uh, be able to undergo maintenance work near their home port. Um, the Navy likes to keep the crews happy. The crews' families are living in, 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 in the home port. And it's always a good thing when they can have the work done at home rather than go someplace else. So this is this is an interesting development. It also takes Austell further into the into their diversification, right? They were just a ship builder building these uh, high-speed aluminum ships. They're now moving out into steel uh, in a big way. They're on the submarine program, they're on the aircraft carrier program. 
They do a lot of unmanned stuff. And uh, now they're really, really ramping up their repair work. I think the fact that, as you said, the fact that it adds more or any LCS home port uh, maintenance capability in, in the San Diego area, I think is critical to quality of life. The other thing is, is that it, it also is another player um, in doing that maintenance. So obviously their plan is to do it in San Diego, but they're already doing similar maintenance in Singapore. And so this just adds to the, I guess, the robustness of what they can provide the Navy. And, you know, again, if you believe what people the, the types of windows that people throw around, uh, you know, that things are going to get more dangerous over the next couple of years. Um, having this type of capability, um, you know, whether it's in San Diego or whether it's Fink and Terry in, in Jacksonville, I mean, I, I think it, it ups our collective game in the ability to keep ships ready and then, God forbid, if need be, repair them, uh, you know, should the shooting start. It does. It does up the capability. And this is, a, this is really critical on the, on the West Coast. The, the most of the repair capability in the country is on the East Coast and on the Gulf Coast. There's not really a whole lot on the West Coast, and it's difficult for people to expand out there. It really is. Um, as a matter of fact, floating dry docks far easier to build a, to open a new yard or expand with a floating dry dock than to build to build a new dry dock, which is uh, for all the regulations out there incredibly incredibly hard and really not worth it. So we were at West. West is, um, it is actually, for those of you wondering what the full name of the show is, it's West. Uh, it's actually sponsored by AFSIA um, and the USNI, the Naval Institute. So it's, it's half an electronic show, it's half Navy show. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of electronic systems out there that we don't usually see at things like Service Navy Association or, or Sea Air Space. Um, some of that technology, I think, Chris, did you did you see something that caught your eye out there? I did. I I mean, so both the technology and then the opportunity to talk to people at the IW Navy's Information Warfare Pavilion. Um, as you said, I mean, in years past, for me, this felt like two different shows housed under the same roof. Um, it felt a lot different th this time. It really felt like there was a um, a central war fighting or a central competition theme that everybody was plugging in both on sort of the more traditional USNI side and on FCS. So I, I thought it was a good show. I, I, kudos to the IW community for, um, sp I think, speaking in a more um, war fighter friendly language, and that's not meant to dig on them. They they typically did a a good job of speaking to themselves, um, but in okay. in this case, I thought they did a better job of kind of reaching everybody. They did, they did, and the, you know the speakers were good too. Um, uh, of course, CNO and SecNav, uh, Chief of Naval Operations, Secretary of the Navy, uh, both spoke on the final day of the show. Um, the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps was was there for the first day. Um, uh, Pacific Fleet Commander Paparo uh, spoke in the middle day. Um, you, you do, I mean, you know, the big, the big folks come out to play here. Um, CNO is actually on, in, in the midst of a major trip to go out there. He continued out to the Pacific and um, has been hitting, hitting some spots now in Asia. Um, SecNav has been speaking almost continuously since then with a lot yeah. of with a lot of stuff that he said. Um, so, so it's almost hard to remember which day, which day, which event it was when he said something. Um, right. You heard some. You heard him talk this week uh, back here in I think DC about 
comment about the Chinese shipyards. Yeah, um, speaking at the National Press Club in in D.C. this week, um, he talked about um, the the Chinese uh, shipbuilding capability um, and the the size of the of the Chinese fleet. I mean, you know, his premise was, hey, look, they have a they're able to build more ships than we are because they have a greater um, shipbuilding uh, c- capacity. Quotes of note that I'll kind of share with the audience. Uh, you know, one was they have 13 shipyards. In some cases, their shipyard has more capacity. One shipyard has more capacity than all of our shipyards combined. That presents a real threat. Then talking about why we couldn't catch up or what the challenges of U.S. shipyards, he talked about unemployment. Um, he, you know, he made the point that it's not enough to just simply build shipyards in the United States. You've got to have uh, the right uh, type of worker. Um, and he, you know, he said when you have unemployment at less than four percent, it makes it a real challenge. Whether you're trying to find workers for a restaurant or you're trying to find workers for a shipyard, um, you, you know, we we heard similar, I, I would say, more measured and more nuanced discussion from some of the shipyard folks that we've talked to over the last year, but the point is, uh, is never less the same. The Chinese shipyards, this is nothing new. Um, This has been going on for quite some time. They have, there are a number of, there are actually two or three immense, unbelievably huge shipyards now in the greater Shanghai area area up around Dalian. There are are several more uh, and there are others around the the country. Their capacity is immense and they are it's getting difficult to find even commercial ships that aren't built in China, uh, Korea, and Japan. Korea, really, and then Japan, being it being the other the other competitors, and then some European functions. But even then, some ships are not all built in the same place. Uh, they're built built in one location, the hull, and then they towed somewhere to to be completed as a model that you see in Europe a lot. Um, but the Chinese capacity is, is truly unbelievable. Um, it is not something we're going to match, but um, we can we can meet our needs too. I think in the, in the sense that you know ship for ship is one thing, but but it, but, but it is true the capability and capacity. The endless well, that- debate about that. Yeah, I mean that seems to be, I guess, what we've uh, convinced ourselves. You know, we've we've bought off on the the capability argument. That that's what helps us sleep at night is that you know we have more capability and therefore that trumps their larger capacity. Uh, you know, I, I think Sam Tangretti would would argue di- different and did argue different when we had him on a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, and and no doubt, I mean, our ships are more ready than they have been in a long time, and it looks like money will continue to flow towards. I readiness. hope they are. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, at least from a from a money standpoint, they appear to be. We appear to be prioritizing readiness more. Um, I, you know, like, like we've talked about before, I'm worried about missile tubes and numbers of missiles. Right. So, um, but he's out there talking, so I, I, I guess that's a good thing. It is a good thing. And and both of them, uh, I know both CNO and Seknav, um, took time the day before they spoke to go visit the shipyards that are there, GD NASCO and BAE. They crawled around ships. They saw stuff. Uh, CNO just um, did a nice trip to the Gulf Coast um, about three weeks ago to visit both Austell and Ingalls. Um, he needed to. He needed to see what he needed. He needed to sort of slow down and um, and take in what what was down there and not not not, not just show the flag, but 
but really, really pause and, and um, listen and look and, 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 and what, what's happening. And I spoke with him. He 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 was very impressed. He was really impressed with both both of those yards. Um, it's not necessarily the narrative that people have been saying about in the industry, and it doesn't have the capacity, and they don't they're, they're not they're not ready to up their game. Both of those yards are very much ready to up their game. They're waiting for a demand signal. They're waiting for you want to order it where's the money we'll do it you're going to talk about your visit to gd um nasco here in a second but i mean it, you know it, it's good that cno I, I think walked away um with a better understanding of that capacity it would be better i think if he and the secretary realized that you know even if we're not trying to match the chinese ship for ship if we do want to make the gains that both have said whether it's in crude or uncrewed um, the way we buy ships has to evolve as, right. as well. So it's it's both the recognition of the capacity, but also finding the right tool. And every time we talk to industry, we we hear that. So you almost have to kind of repeat it because it 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 deserves uh, re- repeating in this discussion. There are, and and you know, people talk about well, how they do in World War II? Why can't we do that again? Well, for the mo- for one reason, the industrial base doesn't look the same at all, and it's not going to. But you know, some of the things we do hold things back, and we're 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 really tying back. And this isn't; these are not popular thoughts with with, with certain people. But politics, well, yes, everything is politics. But you know, one for one for one for one is not a very good policy. Some yards can handle the can handle more work. Some yards absolutely cannot. Um, tying yards together. We've got it. If we give them one, they get got to get one. is is really a poor policy, and it's not getting us where, where we need to be. The other part is you really have to look at. There has to be a. If we're going to to rearm, if that's a word right now, do we have to rearm, or we just have to up our arming, or what do you want to call it? Um, there has to be a recognition that that may not be the most cost effective way to do it. That competition for the best price is not necessarily going to get you a bigger navy, more weapons, better systems, fast. Um, it's just not going to work that way, and that's I mean, it may not be the most efficient way to do it. If we don't have time to do it, do it efficiently, then why are we trying to be efficient? It's, it's either pay now or pay later. I'd rather incentivize companies to do it quickly than to, you know, lock them into a fixed price and kind of languish. Right, right. I mean, it's just, we, we've got to be more creative. We're, we're running out of time. And, yeah. and, and so the, the peacetime mentality is, is not going to hold up. No, it's not. And I, I think when people talk about, you know, the one thing that's absent, you know, we hear SecNav especially, but, but CNO too, you know, industry has, has to perform better. You got to be on time. You got to be on cost. Well, lost in just about every single one of those discussions is an acknowledgement that all those companies have one thing in common. They're dealing with, I don't know, the government, the Navy, that customer. And it's a tough customer. It's a really, really tough customer. It's not a merchant customer at all. It's not like commercial work and on any number of levels. But uh, they, you know, they're, they're leaving themselves out of that discussion. And I think, I think incredibly obviously, I don't know, it's a, you have to do better, not us. Well, you, you're the customer. That's all starts with you. Um, I, while I was out there, as Christian said, I, um, after the show, I, I went over to visit um, General Dynamics NASCO shipyard out there, which is a really interesting shipyard. And people don't, 
in the in the pantheon of shipyards, you know, there's the the two big companies are HIR Huntington Ingalls Industries and GD General Dynamics. GD has three major operations: the electric boat builds uh, submarines, the prime for all the submarines in the country, and they have two major yards, actually one in um, in uh, Quonset Point, Rhode Island, and uh, the um, other facility in Groton, uh, Connecticut. Uh, they have obviously Bath Ironworks up in Maine, builds destroyers, and they they get a lot of pub. Kind of lost in the mix because they're not building warships um, out in San Diego is GD NASCO. Uh, they build they don't build warships uh, like destroyers and things, but they build really big ships. And they are they're they're building uh, the the Expeditionary Strike Base bases ESBs, which um, are are very uh, more and more are being used. Um, by the combatant commanders around the world um, for really effective operations, and they're 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 now producing they're in series production for the new John Lewis class fleet oiler. These are very large ships. There's nothing small about them at all. The oilers are, are really key to keeping the Navy's forward presence um, effective, uh, as the older oilers they're replacing are really wearing out. Um, they're 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 in full production on those. I walked on the, on on. Um, the John Caney ESP six ESP seven is is um, is is um, filling up their their um, graving dock out there. ESP eight is already in the in the early stages of fabrication. They are they've got three oilers, three fleet oilers in the yard. Four actually in the early stages of the fourth. The first ship is uh, was delivered last uh, last summer, John Lewis. But also they they do repair work. And they're the only only yard that does a does a major construction job that still does major multi-hull repair works. There were three destroyers and, a, and an amphibious ship out there um, in undergoing major availabilities. Matter of fact, one of them, the Pinkney EDG ninety one, is the first ship that's having the um, new um, service Sea uh, Whip um, service electronic warfare improvement program, which is a uh, the the basic. Um, Electronic warfare system on U.S. Navy ships is a Slick 32, SLQ-32, and and multiple variants of that V V one two three one one three um, different sizes on virtually every Navy ship. There's there's a Slick 32 variant. This is the new system is a, is a is designated Slick seven, and yet it is much larger, much larger, far more effective. It really uh, it really should be a different designation, and there's a great big housing that. Um, takes that that actually will dramatically change the appearance of all ships that have it. Uh, the Pinckney is is really impressive. I put some photos out of the ship on uh, Twitter a few couple of weeks ago, and it, people immediately nobody had seen it. Yeah, unbelievably huge. Um, CNO cr actually crawled through that new structure. So a pretty sophisticated job that um, GDNASCO is doing. Plus, they actually have a couple of ships that are in the shipyard as well. But um, I've, I've, we rarely have seen so much activity in such a concentrated area. I mean, just an awful lot going on. Really, um, nothing more abundant about that at all. I mean, really, it was just it was really impressive. Um, before we leave, we can't take we, I, we we can't leave without talking a little bit about Ukraine. Everybody here knows it's been a year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and there are some naval. Lessons learned to be talked about here. It's sort of interesting how at almost every conference, when they go to the Q and A part, um, Navy officials are asked about lessons learned from Ukraine, 
and boy, they really don't want to talk about it. They really blow it off. Um, no, nobody wants to really say anything. So, well, it's too early, or we're still saying it, which is sort, which is absolutely not true. People take lessons as soon as they realize what's going on. Um, Chris, after a year on the, on the naval side, what do you what do you think you've seen in Ukraine? Well, I mean, I, I think I've seen the the value of um, you, you know precision munitions uh, and and rocket guided munitions, and I think that you know e even if you don't go fleet on fleet, the value of quantity in um, th those munitions I, I I think is important. It, it's interesting because Breaking Defense did a a roll up, and you know they quoted CNO as kind of saying the opposite that uh, you, you know capability would trump capacity um I, I i guess i would just in the sense of weapons if you don't have them you can't fire them so it doesn't matter how sophisticated and i think we've seen this on both the russian side and on the uh ukrainian side both in the limited maritime skirmishes that we've seen but especially ashore so um as i look at it the lesson that i'm taking away is We've got to crank up those missile lines, um, those artillery lines, um, so that we have things to fire at bad guys uh, when competition turns to conflict. Right. People people always use up munitions at a far higher rate than what people predict. And even when they predict it's fast, it usually exceeds a prediction. Uh, and it takes forever to build these things. These, uh, these are not you know, World War I shells that you can keep you know, pumping out by the thousands a, a day. Uh, they're expensive. They're, and they just, um, this is, this of course is a worry right now. It, it's a worry in, in the areas we, we, we've been giving a lot of our stocks of missiles and of munitions to Ukraine, mostly non-Navy stuff. Um, but the worry there is it's all, it's all the same industrial base that uh, builds those things. Um, that's, it, it certainly is having an impression on people right now. I, I guess from my point of view, I hope that, that that's the message starts to be driven home, that you really have to up, up your rate of buying munitions now long before you need to really use them. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, it becomes with all of this, it becomes like a, a multi-layered chess game, right? Because it's not just a matter of like, hey, we got to buy more. Well, you have to buy a certain amount to be able to get the line up to right. a pace where it can produce an amount. I mean, it, so you're you're dealing with this at, at many different uh, levels. And if you right. wait till the shooting starts, you're probably not going to have what you need. So, you know, SM6 missiles, standard, standard missiles, SM6 is... Um, has become really probably the most effective conventional warfare, non-ballistic, not shooting at ballistic missile targets, uh, missile for the surface fleet and certainly for the, for the future. Um, really versatile uh, weapon, uh, pretty good weapon from all, all reports, but Raytheon makes those. They can only make them so fast. You know, you have different components, you have engines, you have seekers. Uh, those are subcontracted. Um, Raytheon's been telling me for a while that at the moment, it takes them three years from the time you order it to the time of delivering a full all-up round to, to buy an SM6 missile with you know, adjustments here and there all over. Uh, you could probably get that down to about 18 months, but that's it. Even that would be a major accomplishment. So this stuff, and, and that, that's, a, that's a missile that conflict happens, that people are going to use that missile fast. They have confidence in it more and more. Um, there's something that 
interesting that uh, some conference broke, maybe, was that uh, amphibious assault. The Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet uh, had a significant um, amphibious uh, lift capability. Uh, the uh, Russian Marine, the Russian Naval Marines, uh, very well trained, theoretically, um, like everything else, theoretically, and with the Russians. Um, people expected a full-out assault on the Ukrainian coast all the way down to Odessa, which is really the major port. Um, and it didn't happen. There were some initial gains, but they were limited. And then it became apparent pretty, pretty fast that the Russians were not willing to risk an amphibious assault in a contested area. If somebody's going to shoot back at them. Maybe we won't do that. And then it wasn't just the shooting back. The, the, the uh, Ukrainians mined the, the area, put lots of sea mines, um, and it made it, made, made it just really problematic. So that assault on Odessa, which was everybody expected to take place really soon when the war started on February 24th, has still not taken place. Um, and it's, uh, it's, they've, they've really retreated. Other um, systems have pushed uh, the Russian Navy back. Uh, a lot of times they don't come out. They're, 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 they're spending more time now uh, back in Sevastopol and even Nikolaev. Um, you never can decide if it's Nikolaev, Nikolaev, I don't know. Um, you're the naval expert, you tell me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, I've heard it uh, a couple different ways. But um, you know they're 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 not venturing out as much as they, they as much as they were. They do come out. Obviously, the use of the, the caliber cruise missile, which is you know Tomahawkski, um, similar similar in, um, in in form and function to our Tomahawk cruise missiles, they've been using those by the hundreds, uh, bombarding Ukraine, you know, raining destruction from on high, um, and it comes from all platforms, which has always been interesting, uh, even even pretty small. Ships that are barely large patrol boats, smaller corvettes, uh, frigates, and of course submarines uh, have all been used and have all been um, launching multiple caliber missiles throughout this conflict. They still do, although today more are being, I think, far more are being shot down by the Ukrainians than are they're actually getting through. But that's interesting. The um, you know the the Snake Island sagas. Uh, you know, early in the war, it was a small, this is an island that's not far off the, the Ukrainian coast in the Black Sea, but it's, uh, it's interesting from a, a geographic point of view and that um, lines of territory cross through there. It's, a, it's, it's, it's fairly strategic, um, if, even if the, the thing itself is not very big. It's a rocky island, hard, hardly anything to it. Um, but we all know the Ukrainian delegation there was, I think what was that phrase? What was it F U? Can we say? Uh, can we say? Say spell it out here on um, sure. We can say podcast F-U. land. Uh-huh. Fuck you, Russian r- r- Russian warship. Um, they sold a lot. Sold a lot. A lot of lot of merch on that stuff. Um, you know the the Ukrainians lost. Obviously the Russians um, took over the island, and then the Ukrainians kept bombarding it. And the drones, um, and, the, and the Russians eventually abandoned it. It was just it, it wasn't worth holding. Um, and that's part of the other thing, drone warfare. Uh, this this uh, major, this is this is one of these aspects that's not being talked about in public very much, is that we are over there, we and other NATO nations, our NATO navies, are very heavily involved from everything I've heard in advising the Ukrainians on drone warfare and what you know what we've learned. Of course, we're we're learning from what they're they're doing, 
they're, they're actually applying it. There was that one very interesting attack um, a few months ago on Sevastopol by these small surface um, unmanned vessels that um, doesn't seem to have done major damage, uh, but it certainly uh, lit up the night. It's sort of, I mean, people were really active. Um, quite interesting, you know, surprise. Probably we'll see, some, see something like that again. But um, we're just not, that, that, that is one aspect that we're really not hearing about. Of course, the highlight of the war from the naval point of view uh, was the sinking of the Moskva, um, which apparently was a really interesting, coordinated, very sophisticated strike, um, multi layered operation on that ship. And in the end, it seems that, yeah, it was old, but it was also unprepared. It was not not very look good 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 uh, condition, and they weren't they don't seem to have been buttoned up the way they should have been. Um, so you guys are in a combat zone, you know that, right? And uh, hmm. no, no, they didn't seem to get that message. Um, what did what did you take out of that, Chris? Did you? I, I think you're exactly right. I, I hope that uh, Western naval leaders will look at that and recognize that despite what you think, you, you may not be as prepared and you may not be as good as you think you are. Now, there'll be people that'll say, well, we knew the, you know, we knew the Russians were a paper Navy or we knew they weren't prepared and we're better. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, there, you know, there are similar lessons from collisions that we've had where um, if you're not, you know, the ship that is more ready, the ship that trains more, the ship that um, springs into action uh, is able to save lives and save property, um, you know, much uh, much quicker than that the ship that isn't. So I, I think if if I'm a Western naval leader, I'm looking at Moskva and uh, I'm trying to figure out first why why weren't they prepared? How did um, the you know the enemy fire get get through? And then how did they lose the ship um, and ensure that that right. we're you know we're not only learning from things like Fitzgerald and McCain, but that we're also incorporating Moskva into some of our uh, training scenarios? I hope we are. I, I'm, I imagine we are. I hope we are. Um, there's a lot of things we don't know, a lot of things we think we know, and um, who knows? <laughs> so um, I think that'll wrap it up for now. But um, obviously, this is a, this is not a war um, we we want to see. It's it's been unbelievably hard on, on the people of Ukraine and, and frankly, the Russian people too. Um, wars, wars are not good things and they really aren't. And this, the destruction that is um, going on daily in that part of the world is just awesome. It's, and I mean awesome, like as an awe, in awe of it. It's, it, it's incredible. The resiliency of people even to, to, continue, to carry on in the face of such things is always impressive, um, but it really is a shame. So, but you got to get prepared. And if people don't think you're going to you're going to respond, they'll probably just do what uh, Vladimir Putin did a year ago. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box, and Mr. Cavus this week talks about the importance of working and fighting with allies and partners. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, there's an ancient military axiom that says no plan survives contact with the enemy. One of the great lessons of Russia's war on Ukraine is just that. Whatever Russia's goals were, they weren't achieved, and something happened that was quite the opposite of what they were expecting. Ukrainians didn't welcome the Russians, Russia didn't roll over Ukraine, and the even greater goal of fracturing and even possibly disbanding NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, created exactly the opposite effect. NATO is united as never before. The clear, unambiguous threat 
of hostile Russian military and political intentions has thrust the alliance into a truly remarkable era of agreement and action. China is closely watching all aspects of the conflict, taking note of what works, what doesn't, what could have worked better if done a bit differently. There are many technical and organizational aspects within their direct control that they no doubt already are revising and updating. One of the outstanding lessons of the war is a need for allies. No nation can do it alone. Ukraine, of course, is fighting back valiantly using tools of war pouring in from NATO countries. Russia, thought to have virtually unlimited military supplies for a prolonged ground campaign, quickly found itself coming up short and has needed weapons from other countries, including China, but others, including importing aerial, aerial attack drones from Iran. In the Pacific, the analogy to Russia invading Ukraine is that of China invading Taiwan, the so-called 32nd province of China. Taiwan cannot be invaded by land, but must be assaulted from the sea, something the Chinese communist government in Beijing clearly is preparing to do. But what happens if the Chinese apply their overwhelming military advantage in an attack and attempted occupation of Taiwan? Will other countries in the region simply turn their backs and count their lucky stars it's not them? Or will they come together in a united front to oppose and expose the Chinese threat to them all. Every deployed U.S. Navy ship exercises with foreign allies. One of the mainstays of a Western Pacific deployment is to show U.S. warships operating closely with those, those of allies, Japan, South Korea, Australia foremost, but also including India, Malaysia, Indonesia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Thailand, and more. The region lacks an established military organizational counterpart to NATO, but bilateral one-to-one -one relations with the U.S. are strong. U.S. Indo-Pacific Com Command no doubt has contingency plans to provide a structure for allies to quickly consolidate their forces to oppose a military threat. China, by contrast, has no real friends in the region. Russia does maintain a significant military presence, including the Russian Pacific fleet based around Vladivostok, but that port is vulnerable to containment and could quickly lose its effectiveness should a conflict break out and the Russians have shown that they lack the kind of military prowess everybody assumed they had prior to a year ago. For their part, the Chinese have their own problems. They are not omniscient. They have many weaknesses that can be exploited. Russia's war in Ukraine is absolutely a wake-up call, not just to real dangers in the world, but also to the power of resistance in opposing clear aggression. It would be interesting to see how the Chinese are evaluating that. Thanks, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. And folks, the Cavishers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense technologies partner, supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering hard stuff done right. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.